1: so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash history extra. Just go to indeed.com slash history extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. It's hard not to add a side of hot, crispy hash browns to your favorite
3: McDonald's breakfast. It's even harder not to eat said hash browns
4: before you get home.
1: Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence.
0: Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. It's more than 2,000 years since the Greek philosopher Socrates was accused of atheism. And since then, the contention that a god or gods do not exist has been on quite a journey. It's a story that takes in the Middle Ages, when professing a lack of faith could place you in serious danger, the surge of scepticism following the Reformation, and the rise of communist states that attempted to stamp out religious faith. Spencer Mizen sat down with Alec Ryrie, professor in the Department of Theology and Religion at Durham University, to discuss everything you wanted to know about the history of atheism. So,
4: Alec, I thought we'd start with a question submitted by Susan Pollitt on Twitter. And that is, is there much difference between an atheist and an agnostic? And I wonder if you could then kind of use that as an opportunity to provide us with a a definition of atheism. What does it mean to be an
3: atheist? That's a a, a really good question. I think it's an essential starting point. And those two words, atheist and agnostic, do offer a, a, a great way into it. Because the the history of the of those words is really different. Agnostic is is a very modern word. Um, it, it, it comes out of the out of the mid nineteenth century, out of all those kind of classic science religion debates in the wake of, of of Darwin's origin of species. And emerges because by that point atheist had taken on a, a, a really precise meaning which is still the meaning that we give to it today broadly whereas you know nowadays we would say an atheist is someone who asserts that there is no god so it's a, it's about making a definite metaphysical claim and the idea of, of an agnostic is, uh, is, is is somebody who does not claim to know you know it means it derives from the greek word gnosis for knowledge agnos it's someone who does not know whether or not there is a there is a god who is is not claiming certainty atheism has often in in modern times been attacked as 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 dogmatic as as laying down you know for, for 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 a certainty that there is no god with the same kind of conviction that religious believers are often supposed to to have and so so agnosticism is is a deliberate attempt to separate itself out from that but if you go back into the the longer history of this of this word atheist you get quite a different feel for it and i think this is this is really important because it's not not just in terms of the history it's 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 how this whole idea has has developed I mean, obviously enough, it's a Greek word. Um, the, the the original word is 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 atheos. And the origins and meaning of that are, are something much closer to an English word like godless than to our sense of kind of philosophical atheism. It's always included that kind of core sense of asserting that there that there is no god or that there are no gods. Yeah. But the ancient Usages of, of this word are much more like people who, who live in a godless way, who live um, and, and think and act without reference to God or to the gods. So when Socrates is, is famously accused of, of atheism, this is because he is, is seen as, as being impious, of, of rejecting what the gods of ancient Greece stand for. The fact that, when in ancient times, that Greek word "atheos" is translated into Latin, the Latin word that's chosen for it as the equivalent is "impious," gives you a sense of the of the range of of meaning that we have here. So this is much more about that's uh, about how you act and the role or lack of role that religion has in your life than necessarily what your metaphysical claims about the the being or non-being of a deity might sure. be. In that sense, it makes perfect sense in the ancient world, for example, the early Christians, to be accused of being atheists, despite the fact that, of course, they vehemently assert their belief in one God, because they are denying the gods of the society in which they in which they stand, and it's an act of impiety, and that's it's virtually the same thing.
4: Now, Polina Panchakova asks, when did the term atheism first appear, and when did it enter the lexicon? Now, you've just referenced their atheism existing back in antiquity. But would I be right in saying that it didn't actually enter usage until quite a lot later than that?
3: Well, it's it's certainly around and, and you know very much part of public discourse in antiquity. You know, and I think yeah. that 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 remains that remains important. It's yeah. a fairly widespread concept at that point but without a huge moral charge attached to it you know yeah. because it it has this 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 meaning of of impiety or or irreligion and in the very religiously plural societies of the of the ancient world that was was just a a phenomenon and in particular there were philosophical schools in antiquity like epicureanism that are you know, fairly openly seen as as atheistic, not in the sense that somebody like Lucretius denies that there is a god. Um, he simply denies that it matters, that whether or not there is a god is a a metaphysical speculation with no relevance for for human life. But as Christianity begins to spread within the Roman world and to 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 make its presence felt. This idea acquires more of a of a charge. I mean, there's a there's a famous exchange that's that's recorded in the in the second century, um, during the account of the martyrdom of of Polycarp, one of the first first Christian martyrs, who we've got a, a a full full account of his death, where when he is is brought to the arena and offered the the opportunity to to recant before being before being executed, the Roman governor, who's trying to persuade him to to back down, says, you know, won't you make a sacrifice to the emperor and say down with the atheists? The governor, of course, meaning Christians as atheists. And Polycarp refuses to make a sacrifice to the emperor, but he will say down with the atheists, because of course, for him, it has the opposite meaning. Sure. for him it's the people around him who are worshiping these false gods who are atheists who are who are impious in that sense so you can see there that that this word is is acquiring that kind of of polemical edge but once christianity becomes the dominant religion of the of the Roman world and then and then you know really the established and only religion of the of the post-Roman world from the aside from the presence of of Jews which remains significant from the fifth, sixth centuries onwards, then this word atheist largely fades out of out of use. And significantly it's never translated into Latin in this period. There's never a, a Latin equivalent which has those sorts of philosophical resonances there there are terms like unbelief which are being used and you know through the middle ages you you see people periodically brought up before church courts on charges that would would usually be framed as blasphemy for denying some fundamental aspect of of christian doctrine including sometimes explicitly denying that or questioning whether there is a god so that that's an issue it's a perennial one and if it's not actual denial of the of the being of god then you will find you I mean, all sort of you know constructive forms of atheism you might say of, of of denials of of other aspects of Christian doctrine such as the immortality of the soul that are seen as so fundamental that they amount to um, you know, utter denial of the religion sure. yeah but that that word that Greek term atheist is not used to to apply to them it's really it's only in the Renaissance that that starts to come into into Western sure. Latin usage.
4: OK, great. I'm now going, going to turn to a question submitted by TW on social media. And that is, how would people react if you said you were an, an atheist in the medieval period? Now, I guess the Middle Ages are very much known as the age of faith, in Europe at least. So is there much evidence for atheism in this period?
3: okay well first of all atheism as such no because that term is not isn't 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 being used so if you said if you said you were an atheist then they 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 would say you know that's all Greek to me no idea what you mean if you said you were an unbeliever or if 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 you said i I do not believe there is a God then you would probably be in a fair amount of trouble at least you could be um, it would depend on on somebody denouncing you. Obviously, you know the Middle Ages is a long time, covers a big big part of the world. There's you know a, a, an awful lot of variety within within that period.
4: Sure,
3: but certainly by the by the later Middle Ages, when the records are better, when the church courts are are set up in a more um, systematic way and in particular where the Western Church's systems for policing, heresy, and dissent are are, are quite well established. We see a, a pretty steady stream, or, well, steady trickle, of of people being accused of statements that we could put in that kind of big bucket of atheistic comments. It's a fairly regular... Source of, of 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 accusations. It's often the sort of thing that gets labelled as as blasphemy. Very often, these are the sorts of things that people say when they're drunk or when they're gambling, cursing God when the when the dice fall against them. This 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 sort of yeah. thing, and these things are taken with you know varying degrees of of, of seriousness. Um, Thomas Aquinas in the in the 13th century you know, writes quite carefully about the issue of, of 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 blasphemy, and you know effectively says you know some people just say this kind of thing when they're angry, they're letting off steam, and it's bad, it's a sin, but it's not something to be taken too seriously. It's not the same as you know soberly and deliberately claiming there is no God, which would not only be blasphemy, it would be heresy. And for, for a baptised Christian to assert such things deliberately after correction could ultimately lead to the, the standard judicial punishment for heresy, which would, would, would be execution by, by burning. There are not many medieval cases where things actually reached that point most people who are accused of such things are, are 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 willing to back down or we find the accusation being made after their after their deaths but there, there's another another side to this which i think is quite important which is that often these kinds of of claims during the medieval period appear more as as pastoral problems than as disciplinary ones. So somebody coming forward saying, I am struggling to believe this, you know, going, going to yeah. their preset, you know, how can I believe that that my soul will live on after my death? Or, I mean, maybe this is, is the most characteristic place where doubt clusters in, in the Middle Ages. How can I truly believe in the miracle of transubstantiation? How can I believe that the, the the bread and wine on the altar is truly miraculously transformed into Christ's body and blood? Was it a
4: case of people
3: doubting and being troubled
4: by their doubts? They didn't want to doubt, but yet they kind of couldn't stop themselves.
3: That that very much seems to be to be a theme. I mean, I I, I think that's a theme that runs runs right through the the period from the yeah. from the, the Middle Ages right up into modernity. And the awareness amongst clergy that this is a pastoral problem that they've got to to help people who are who are wrestling with these sorts of doubts is a is you know this is a common theme in the in the in the pastoral writing of the period. One of the the most common one of the most frequently recurring miracle stories of of, of the Middle Ages is of Eucharistic visions. This is of of people who are at mass witnessing you know the celebration of the of, of the sacrament of Holy Communion, when according to Catholic doctrine, the, the bread and wine are are miraculously but imperceptibly transformed into the true body and blood of Christ. And that these people who have doubted the truth of that miracle in these stories are granted a vision of what is truly happening on the altar and are seeing hunks of human flesh at Christ standing on the altar pouring out his 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 blood visions which in these stories they they always regard as as horrifying and beg to be taken away from them but the fact that those stories are so often told I, we have to take as an index of the fact that there is 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 widespread doubt of people struggling to to truly believe these things
4: okay i'm going to move forward to a few centuries with a question from Gavin Griffiths. He says, the playwright Christopher Marlowe was often described as an atheist, but what exactly would that have meant to somebody living in the 16th century? Now, we kind of know that Christopher Marlowe said some fairly punchy things during his lifetime, but I'd like to expand on that a little by asking, given the background all this, how did the Reformation change the picture for atheism? Did it drive a lot of people to atheism?
3: That's a, that's a great question. I, I, I think it's a really important juncture in this story in the West. It's when atheism moves to, to being at the centre of people's religious anxieties. It's not a coincidence that this is the, the period when that word actually re-enters, re-enters or re-enters Western yes. Christian discourse. The first use of it in Latin that we know of is from 1501, but it's then in the, um, you know, this is part of the general rediscovery of Greek during the Renaissance. It's, it then makes its way very quickly into all of the, the major vernacular languages of, of Western Europe. English is one of the last ones to, to pick it up. First recorded yeah. use of the word atheist in English is in, in, in 1553. And it, it becomes really very widely established uh, after that. So I mean, by the time Marlowe is, is being accused of atheism in the early 1590s, everybody knows what this, what this word means. And I think that itself tells you something. It shows that by the time this word appears, it, there's, there's already a lively market for it. It's, it's 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 a word that that fills a need. So I mean, if we go back to what to what Martin Luther is doing at the at the beginning of the Reformation in the late 15, 1510s, <laughs> at the risk of stating the obvious, Martin Luther's not an atheist. He is doing two things. He and his, his, his um, you know, followers and successors and, and allies are doing two things which really help to bring this to centre stage. One of them is that for, for Luther, his entire reconception of Christianity is based on this idea of faith alone, salvation by faith alone, which means the question of faith becomes absolutely central to what to defining what a what a christian is in that in that protestant world and of course it forces catholics to respond to respond likewise the idea of belief then suddenly has to carry uh, an enormous weight and this 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 really quest, puts this question of of well do you do you believe do you truly believe is your belief saving belief or, or, or do you fail in belief in some way which is not quite the same thing as atheism but can tip over very 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 easily into it so in that sense it it makes the the idea of failed or insufficient belief become something that haunts a great many christians so that's one way it matters the other and rather more prosaically is that one of the things that the, the Luther and the Protestant movement does is deploys a vicious, withering scepticism at a great many of the claims, traditional claims of, of Catholic Christianity. Transubstantiation, maybe most, most obviously, but the authority of the Pope, a great, you know, a, a great many of the practices, rites, and traditions of, of Catholic Christianity, the, the Protestants say this is all nonsense there's no reason to believe this yeah. and they're not just deploying that kind of 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 withering skepticism of of you know throwing unbelief at it they are because of the nature of their movement the fact that they they're, they're building this broad movement using the popular press to to build it up they are they're weaponizing skepticism and then training the entire population right. in its use and to some extent, the, the, the Catholic world, as it begins to regroup and fight back against the, the Protestant challenge, is doing the same thing. Is is turning back onto onto Protestants this the, you know these these same kind of skeptical argument. How can you possibly believe what this what this Luther says? You know they claim that the Bible is the word of God. How do they even know that this book um, is the is 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 the word of God? Of course, we as Catholics know it because we um, you know that the, the, you know the Church gives it to us. But the Protestants have no have no basis for that claim. So both sides in this argument pretty quickly are weaponizing scepticism and and training populations in their use. And the trouble, of course, with distributing weapons to a whole population is that you can't entirely control what they're going to do with them. And so one of the things that you begin to find during the course of the 16th century is that whole populations are being faced with religious choices that they've never... That their their ancestors haven't had for a thousand years. And many of them do not want to make choices. Choosing your religion is not what you're supposed to do. It's one of the hallmarks of heresy. But you've kind of got no choice but to be making choices in the 16th century, um, which is a, a profoundly disturbing and destabilizing thing to do. And whatever you believe, you are also rejecting a whole series of of other beliefs and this this is why it's been it's been said i think this is true that by the end of the 16th century everyone in europe is an atheist from someone's perspective because both sides are are accusing one another vehemently of atheism that as i said the term is very widespread it remains almost exclusively I mean, as far as we know exclusively a term of abuse we don't have anybody from this period marlowe does not to, to our knowledge use this term about himself but the conviction by the end of the 16th century that there are atheists everywhere that it's parallel to the way that the the era talks about witches that there there are this this secret but universal plague Um, just sort of lurking beneath the the surface of of, of Christendom. There's a real kind of collective moral panic about the spread of this. And then in the 17th century, that that comes more into the open.
0: Still to come on the History Extra podcast.
3: I think one of the the lessons of the Eastern and Western experiences of atheism in the 20th century, the, the, the communist and capitalist experiences, is that communism tried much harder than anyone in the capitalist world ever did to exterminate Christianity. But capitalism actually did the job much more effectively.
2: We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings
1: And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. But at this point, then, it's still very much a
4: pejorative term. You don't have people coming out and declaring, I'm an atheist and I'm proud of it is still it's still something that can very much land you in trouble then
3: you know very much so people are 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 still facing facing disciplinary proceedings in in various jurisdictions still facing execution potentially for atheism I mean famously the last person to be executed for atheism in Britain is is a Scottish student in 1698 which is is admittedly kind of freakishly late and that's regarded at, the, at 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 the time as a bit of a throwback but still you know that shows what could happen these are are still not sentiments that anybody would be wise to express openly right now it's,
4: it's, it's impossible to have a discussion about the the history of atheism without mentioning uh the enlightenment i mean this great philosophical and intellectual movement is widely seen as supercharging the rise of disbelief is that true and if so
3: why okay so i mean the the old stereotype of the the enlightenment as a as a basically atheistic movement is misleading but it's not completely wrong i think we've we've had a a real awareness over the, in in enlightenment scholarship over the last generation or so of how plural and especially how moderate parts of the enlightenment are, now, awareness of, of moderate enlightenments, of Catholic enlightenments, um, the ex- the extent to which there are parts of this this very broad movement that are explicitly trying to 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 rebuild rebuild and reframe forms of Christianity. I mean, for myself, I think that if you look at the great evangelical revivals of the 18th century, Methodism, the, the Great Awakening in the American colonies, Pietism and Moravian movements in, in Europe, I think these have to be seen very much as, as enlightenment phenomena. And in particular, the emphasis that those evangelical movements place on religious experience rather than on authority. I mean, that's that's a very enlightenment idea. Yeah. You know, in the same way as the scientists are saying, you know, my evidence is that I've seen it with my own eyes. The revivalists are saying, Well, I know this is true because I've felt it in my own heart. That the linguistic overlap between experience and experiment is is not an accident. Yeah. So there 's all that going on, and, and for that reason, I think it's really misleading to think of the enlightenment as as a fundamentally anti religious movement, but you do also have this this phenomenon of the so called radical enlightenment those who are who are much more openly, much more fundamentally challenging some of the some of the core philosophical assumptions of the day and at the head of that, certainly in these regards um, stands um, Burke Spinoza, the Dutch jewish philosopher who in the 1660s begins to to publish a series of texts which lead to him being described as the as the philosophical father of of modern atheism which is is sort of fair in that spinoza is really the first modern philosopher to to construct a philosophical system in which is able to make coherent sense of of the world without invoking god but it's also pretty clear i think that spinoza himself is not an atheist in in any sense of the word his faith which is is maybe closer to the kind of Post-Christian rationalism of groups like the Dutch Collegiants, or indeed the English Quakers, who he's quite close to, Um, he's maybe closer to that than he is to the to the Judaism in which he's raised. by by the time he reaches his his mature views, but he is he is very clear that one of the reasons that he wants to develop the arguments he does against you know the, the authority of the Bible and so forth is because he wants to create a purer theology and that his his understanding of of his faith needs to be rationalized not in order to to demolish it but to correct it right. and indeed some of the arguments that he makes against traditional christian and jewish Theological positions are very much theological arguments. He says that you know, the idea of miracles is offensive to the notion of, of the majesty of God—that God, that God should, should be so inept as a creator that he has to kind of to meddle in his universe in this way—and that I think is, is a recurrent feature of a lot of the voices of the, of the radical Enlightenment, who can be explicitly anti-Christian or anti-Orthodox Christianity mm. in their arguments. So I mean, Voltaire is maybe the most obvious, obvious case here, or the um, Anglo-American revolutionary Tom Paine, who produces the first really successful anti-Christian bestseller in his, his book, The Age of Reason, in the 1790s. And these people can be vicious in their attacks on the traditional churches, but they're usually pretty clear that what they are trying to do is not to abolish the whole theological enterprise, but to do it right.
4: So they're not attacking faith per se?
3: They're not attacking faith per se. They're attacking particular manifestations of yep. it and trying to change it. Um, and, I mean, right at the heart of the French Revolution itself, you see this going. You know, the, 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 in, in, in the early 1790s, there's a ferocious attack on the Catholic Church, from the the revolutionary French regimes, yeah. there's explicitly a de-Christianizing policy which is which is being taken. Of course, for all of their their opponents across Europe, they're they're regarded as horrible atheists, and this this is is utterly shocking. But Robespierre um, in in, in you know, France in 1793 94 is trying to replace Christianity with the cult of the supreme being. Yeah. I mean, this is a kind of rationalistic religion his contemporaries would call it atheist because it's impious um, in their terms but when we look back at it with, with with our perspective you know we have to say okay maybe this is deistic that it it's it is faith in god into something into something very different but you know that's that's not something that let's say a uh, uh, richard dawkins would recognize as proper atheism
4: just to move forward a little bit, what about Darwin's theory of evolution? How did that change the picture? I mean, what did that do to a lot of people's sort of conception of, of, of their faith and, and
3: Christianity? I mean, this is, is one of the one of the key turning points, obviously. But again, it plays out, I think, a little bit differently from the way our our stereotype of it has has has, has, has come to work. Partly because off the back of the, the post-Darwin Debates, people like like T. H. Huxley, the, the man who, who who coins the term agnostic to describe his position, Darwin's bulldog, supposedly, start to formulate a wider thesis of a conflict between science and religion, both of which are slightly problematic, abstract terms. And this idea really emerges in the in the wake of Darwin's book and is then kind of rolled out forward and backwards in time yeah. to become a kind of big explanation for everything that's happened since the since the 17th century. And, and that really doesn't work. It, 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 in, insofar as that classic science-religion conflict happens, it it does happen during that later 19th century period. Of course, a great many Christians find Darwin's theories perfectly workable and if there are problems that they have with it, it's you know, more to do with some of the kind of precise theological implications of its interpretation rather than with the basic claims as such. One of the reasons that there's a whole series of reasons why many other Christians find Darwinism unacceptable. And you know, while they're willing to to bend and adapt on a whole variety of issues, this 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 becomes a, a point on which many of them Want to make a stand? Its implication for the implications about human racial difference become a problem actually on both sides, because Darwinism is both used to 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 argue that human beings are fundamentally the same, and there are some, especially in the Americas, who find that really offensive. But. Equally, Darwinism is is being used increasingly by the late 19th century to argue actually that the, the human so-called races are profoundly different from one another. And that really is offensive to classic Christian understanding of human unity. And so there's a lot of progressive or sort of left-wing Christians who are opposed to Darwinism because they see it as an, as an essentially racist philosophy. But it's it's plainly the case that one of the things that christianity had had leaned on in its the arguments that it had been it had been been making against various forms of doubt for a couple of hundred years is various forms of the argument from design you know that that you know a created world shows that shows the signs of god at work and really for the first time from the 1860s onwards you've got a, a, a really thorough well worked out answer to that and it it means that it it becomes possible to to construct a kind of a widespread alternative theory of an understanding of the of the world i don't think in itself that's decisive but it provides intellectual cover for okay. some of the some of the deeper changes that are that are happening in in society which are maybe more to do with, you know, in terms of the the, you know, the 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 people who are introducing big ideas in the 19th century. Um, it's maybe less to do with Darwin and more to do with Marx. So
4: what was Marx's views on this then? I mean, actually, I wanted to kind of take you on to my next question a little bit, because I wanted to talk about the link between state-directed atheism and communism in the 20th century. I want... I want I wanted to get a sort of feel for what drove this. What, for example, did say Joseph Stalin hope to gain by disentangling state from church?
3: Okay, well, I, I mean I actually I think here again we need to we need to go back to the to the French Revolution. Because this is 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 where this Long antagonism, but I maybe it goes goes back further than that, but it's the most obvious place that you can see it, where there's long antagonism between um, political revolutionary movements of the modern era and organised Christianity. Really, plays out that the the French revolutionaries, for good reasons, regard the the Catholic Church as as one of their most powerful most dangerous institutional opponents uh, a defender of the of the existing social economic political order and therefore something that that simply has to be has to be swept out of the way and 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 something that, that they regard as as morally offensive because of its participation as they see it in the oppression of the the masses and marx absolutely picks up on and and runs with with this idea you know in the in the context of the of, of 19th century Europe where you've got this division between various liberal and nationalistic, forces on the on, on on the one side and various conservative traditionalist forces on the other it's pretty clear that the churches most churches are strongly on the side of of established power of existing social hierarchies they're suspicious towards liberalism towards democracy of of you know and and, and all those those kinds of movements and marx's argument famously is that that, that religion is the opium of the people that and this is his 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 famous doctrine of false consciousness. The idea that this is one of the things that is used to deceive the masses into failing to act in their own interests by promising them the you know offering them these these deceptive promises of future salvation in return for compliance obedience um, and handing over all their money to to to, to churches and other overlords here and now. Now, it's obviously a problematic argument, the, the, the assumption that you know what people want better than they want themselves is, you know, <laughs> let's say, a recurrent problem of, of, of Marxist <laughs> and revolutionary philosophies. But, I mean, you can also absolutely see his point his point and the extent to which there is that, that intimate connection between churches of various kinds and um, and the existing the the old regimes of political power in the in the eighteenth nineteenth into the early twentieth centuries is 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 you know, absolutely clear and maybe clearer nowhere than was the case um, in pre revolutionary Russia, where the um, the Orthodox Church was was you know deeply entangled with the with the tsarist regime um, you know which. Presented Moscow as the third Rome, very much sees, sees themselves as the as, as 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 the heirs of the of the Caesars and of the Byzantine emperors in in that way. So it's not at all surprising that communist regimes would regard religion in general and Christian churches in particular as some of their most dangerous. Antagonists, um, both simply as as alternative centers of social power, but also because of the particular track record that, in their view, these institutions have um, for, for 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 deceiving the people and you know u- using these 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 metaphysical promises to to lure them away from their true political interests. And uh, I mean, my my sense certainly is that. Twentieth century communists deduce their metaphysics from that political insight. They know that the churches as they have met them are wicked institutions. Right. Therefore, the claims that they're making about the nature of reality and of God must be untrue. Right. And so it becomes one of the one of the determining features of communist regimes in you know, in 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 a great many settings, that they want to try to stamp out religious practice, and I mean that's done with varying degrees of aggression. You know, at one extreme, yeah. you've got the, um, uh, the 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 communist regime in Albania, or indeed um, uh, d- uh, in in China during the Cultural Revolution, the the period when religious practice of any kind is completely prohibited. In many other communist regimes there's there's a sense that you know yes the, you know, religion is the opening of the people it must ultimately die Marx's theory of history says that you know this it's a relic but of course you take that that view then you can you can easily say well in, in, you know, in which case you know it's a it's, it's a matter of time you know we could we, we can afford to, to relax and, and and let it die a natural yeah. death. Um as long work. as it is is kept in a in a politically controlled place in the in the meantime and this is what you see in in much of the of the soviet bloc and of course it doesn't work terribly well and you see you know in in- i mean poland is the most the most obvious example of 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 where in in fact the churches become a a real locus of not, i say the churches. One church in particular um, becomes a real locus of resistance and of, of um, reforming an identity against um, against communism. I think one of the the lessons of the the Eastern and Western experiences of atheism in the in the twentieth century, the, the, the communist and capitalist experiences, um, is that communism tried much harder than. anyone in the capitalist world ever did to exterminate Christianity. But capitalism actually did the job much more effectively.
4: That does lead me on to my next question, which was submitted by Michael Camp on social media. He asks, how is the character of contemporary atheism different from its predecessors? So I guess where are we at with atheism at the moment? How, How does it look now compared to, say, 200 years ago?
3: It's that's a really good question. I, I mean, in some ways, freakishly similar to how it looked 200 years ago. You know, if 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 you were to to pick up, you know, the the writings of the so-called new atheists, the kind of Dawkins and um, Dennett and others in the in the early 20th century, there's not much in there that would have been unfamiliar to the anti-Christian polemicists of the of the Enlightenment or the 19th century. There's a few elements. Some of the obviously there's modern bits of science that are being applied to it, but it's a it's a basically familiar structure. Indeed, quite a lot of it would seem comprehensible to Lucretius in ancient times. So, in some ways, these are perennial themes. And I think if you look at, at atheism in a philosophical sense, that's true. But if you look at it as a as a social phenomenon. And I mean, obviously, here the, the the really extraordinary thing is the way that explicit unbelief, that identifying as having no religion, has gone from being a marginal and extreme position in in Western societies, you know, within living memory, to becoming in many social contexts not just the norm, but you know, a, a, a norm from which it's really unusual to dissent in some in some circles. I mean that's a that's a really remarkable phenomenon. It's happened, it's happened very quickly. And I mean this is all a kind of a, a, a sort of, you know, the 1960s is I think classically and correctly seen as the as mm-hmm. the as the pivot of this. One of the features of that shift towards a very widespread unbelief in the in the modern era is that it, it has felt intuitive to many of the people who embrace it just kind of seems obvious to a great many people now to identify as as, as, as having no religion without necessarily any clear sense of why it seems obvious. I, I mean, my reading of this is that it's above all to do with ethics, the way that providing an ethical framework, a real sense of what, what is right and wrong, was maybe the key social function, Of religion up until the early to mid 20th century but post second world war post the extraordinary moral shock of the of of of, of the nazi genocide the emergence of of human rights as a as a moral norm human rights being something that we all believe in you know i believe in but we struggle to articulate why where do human beings get these rights from you know it's a real kind of castle in the air but it is one that we that we absolutely affirm and have that have that faith in, and therefore it feels that religion in general, Christianity in particular, no longer it, you know it's 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 kind of redundant. Um, it doesn't doesn't serve that purpose anymore. If that's so, then my suspicion is that our modern. Consensus around the lack of a need for any kind of religious structure—that you know, we 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 can simply place our faith in this this new ethical system—I think it's a lot more fragile than it looks. Mm. That it it depends on a on a set of of intuitions which we assume we all share. I think it's reasonable to look at the history of our societies and of the world over the last. 10 years or so and and think actually some things are kind of unraveling and that the, the consensus that we all thought we we held is not nearly as firm as as we liked to to imagine so my guess is that both belief and unbelief at the moment you know those those two old dancing partners are at a at an inflection point S- stuff's going to change uh, over the over the next 10 20 30 years. It can't carry on the way it is, but, you know, I'm a historian. I don't know about the future, so don't ask me to predict what's actually going to happen. Uh, Just the blithe faith that many of us have that the world will carry on more or less the way it is seems to me ill-founded.
0: That was Alec Ryrie, Professor in the Department of Theology and Religion at Durham University. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Brittany Colley.
3: A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep.